Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. Welcome to the show today. Thank you for joining us. Brought to you as ever by The Athletic UK. In today's episode, uh, the Thursday Club are going to be looking at Fulham's situation at the moment. We're going to be crunching the numbers on whether Fulham actually can stay up. It's not looking great with six games to go and seven uh, for most of the other teams in the league. And of course, Fulham's effort to try and rescue themselves, pick themselves off the canvas, starts in earnest at the Emirates on Sunday against an Arsenal side that may have their attentions elsewhere. We'll see if that's going to play a factor in this weekend's game. Uh, and the regular Thursday club is back. Peter Rutzler, hello. Hello. Good morning. And Jack Collins. I'm fine, thank you. Jack Collins, hello. Hello, listeners. How are we? Welcome. I'm glad to be back. I was yeah. going to welcome myself back there, but I also think that's how it works. <laughs> uh, welcome back, me. Uh, no, it's, it's good to be back. I, I did miss it last week. I did miss it. Oh, ben Jarman filled your, oh, your, enormous, your enormous shoes, as we uh, talked about um, on the episode. Uh, look, when you have El Catedratico in the in the podcast, you know you're always going to get that. Um, you're always going to get that knowledge that that day. So I I, I loved listening to. It. I always love listening to Ben. Yeah, I, I love listening to Ben too. He was uh, he did admirably in your place, Jack. Okay, just before we get into this podcast, just to say that if you want to subscribe to The Athletic and all of Peter's fantastic pieces, including an exceptional long read on Fulham's Division 1 winning side 20 years ago, you can subscribe for just £1 a week. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. You'll also be able to listen to this podcast advert free. We're going to come on to that uh, a little bit later on in the show. Um, But let's get down to business, as Tiesto would say, first of all, Peter. And it was a really bleak weekend for Fulham. Um, Just just sum up your thoughts, I guess, after that Newcastle win on Sunday. I think everyone was just in quite a dark place on, on Sunday. And I know Stephen... Like you were trying to be optimistic on Twitter and the classic, don't be optimistic, Peter. That's not what we want now was, was coming back at you <laughs> a little bit. And sometimes fans like to comfort themselves in these moments with the whole, it's done, it's done. Stop, stop even thinking that Fulham can stay up, Peter, because it's done, it's done. <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, you know, it's understandable, especially after Sunday's result. Um, and then again, Monday as well with West Brom suddenly finding eight goals in two games and, um, you know, it's, it's understandable to feel like it is it is done. And it certainly feels like the decisive weekend. I don't think there's any getting away from that. Um, this does feel like the point where Fulham, you know, look for all the optimism that we've had and we've talked about the different areas of their game where we felt they've been competitive and, and whatever else. It, it feels like now that to actually make that step and to actually keep themselves in the Premier League looks like it's going to be an enormous, enormous task. And of course, it's not done yet. It's not mathematically done. There's, you know, six points can be turned around in two games. Um, when you look at the fixtures, particularly between Fulham and Newcastle, both have got tough, tough games and it tends to be Fulham who've fared quite well, uh, especially away from home against tougher opposition. So, I <laughs> I mean, afterwards, it's a case of just looking at it going, okay, yeah, you know, this we know the direction of travel now, but maybe, maybe it's not done. I think what... What is most concerning is the consistency of what we're seeing. And I think that's the consistency of errors. It's the fact that the team aren't showing that that punch and that bite and attack, um, which has been a, a long-term problem. Um, and, and, you know, that's something that doesn't, you don't, you, there's nothing really for everyone to sort of take and feel like, you know, that's, that's going to be resolved in these coming weeks. So it's going to take a big effort. It'll take a big turn. And, um, and whether Fulham can do it, it's, <laughs> it looks a long shot. <laughs> I guess what's surprising, Jack, about these recent run of four games is City aside, Fulham looked so kind of, I don't want to say unbeatable, but it was nearly that word for 
several months on end. You know, we talked about Fulham's amazing defensive record. We'd made ourselves so hard to beat. What has changed in these four games where suddenly actually I'm going into Fulham games now almost expecting to lose? Whereas literally a month ago, I was thinking Fulham could literally not lose a whole Premier League game and I wouldn't be that shocked. It it, it seems like quite some turnaround in stature of Fulham's performances. Yeah, pressure, I think, is the truthful answer. I think there are are moments where you look at it and go, has the pressure got too much? And we didn't think that was going to be the case when Fulham bounced off the canvas last time, right? We thought that this squad was made of more. We thought that they had something about them that was able to to kind of see these things out. And instead, we've seen that, that, you know, this... These losses and these punches have, have knocked Fulham down, and and the confidence looks shot. I think is is the key, right? It's not you. You go back to the Aston Villa game, and it's the fact that you're at one point up, you're 19 minutes left of the game, and you're you're currently out of the relegation zone, and then Fulham collapse. And and it, you know the, the Wolves game, I thought the attacking intent wasn't really there, um, and so it gets to that point where you go, okay, how are we going to do this? And then to concede like that in the 93rd minute is is brutal in so many different ways and look I, I put this on Twitter and I got some responses but like is it brutal did Fulham really deserve anything from that game and, and and the truth is no not really but then neither did Wolves who also weren't particularly good I didn't think for the large swathes but I do think the worry is that Fulham have failed to take them the most of their opportunities against a Villa side missing Jack Grealish missing their talisman who were on a woeful run of form and then a Wolves side who have been in in a real blip themselves and didn't look anything like, you know, a, a really serious side. And a lot of people said, oh, well, Fulham don't look that they can be a Premier League side. And I would say, well, if you looked at those two performances, you know, in, on, in that game against Wolves, you actually say neither of those sides look like a Premier League side, to be perfectly honest. And yet we're, we're here having, having that conversation. The Wolves are comfortably mid-table and that's not a dig at them. They're having a blip. They've done what they needed to do earlier in the season, whereas we couldn't do that. But it does like feel that instead of that confidence, as you say, radiating into a game. And I remember going on to the All Leads Aren't We podcast and talking about this and and saying when when they were talking about and someone commented on it saying this lad sounds like he's talking about prime Barcelona. And it was like, that's how confident we were. That's how, you know, excited we were about this team and and about our prospects. And now if you, you know, that same conversation we're having is, is doom and gloom. And the fact that it's changed around so quickly, I think is, is, is a real cause for concern. I think pressure is a, a really key point there from, from Jack. I, it's difficult because I'm looking at it and think, do have the team, are the team shot of confidence? It doesn't feel like they're like, they're shot of confidence. It's just coping with the, the situation. Um, Villa was Villa was a real eye opener in that the game itself was well managed. Fulham did what they needed to do. Yes, they weren't playing at their best, and certainly not what we've seen. But the way in which it turned and how they coped with that adversity, it it was really you know sparked to the side that actually in this area are actually quite vulnerable. Um, when when we when we're entering the heat of battle, where it really does matter in this home straight, you know, it's a completely different environment now. You can you can say with 15 games to go, there's always that that's almost a comfort blanket when things aren't quite going right, or even within games. But that's gone now. When when things do happen, you have to respond then and there. Uh, and then the same with the Wolves game. And I think by this point, once those com- cumulative things start to come into pattern, and you've lost that momentum, that confidence that Jack was just describing, you know, it really was that sort of euphoria about the way Fulham were playing you know and it had been long-standing as well we, I think whenever we'd seen good performances say will they last will they last and they had generally um with the with the exception of actually getting those wins um and it, I think it can be easy at this point to sort of um go over what's been this season and almost provide a revisionist account of how Fulham have played in that they have actually played very well for a long period of time um the one constant has been the goal scoring um, you know, we, we, we talked about that endlessly. Um, the conversion rate is appalling. Uh, there's no buttering that up. Um, and fundamentally, that's that's been the difference. And now we've reached a point where the team aren't the same animal. They're, they're not coping quite as well with the pressure. Um, they're no longer creating the same chances that they were before either. Um, and the options aren't really there in attack either to, to really mix things up. And that's that came to fruition against Wolves. And it was tentative, I think, the out you know, from from the setup was tentative too. Um, and, you know, these sort of factors coming together have, have meant that um, 
the situation looks very, very, very bleak. Now, of course, the other side to it is with the games coming up, maybe does that take some of the pressure off? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I remember talking about the exact same things with, with Bournemouth last year because Bournemouth had some tricky games. And the idea was, well, we know that now the games are tougher, maybe there won't be pressure, but it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Is that a worry, though, as much as anything else, I think? You know, the no, fact that's what that I'm if, saying, absolutely, if, yeah. It, well, it it's not even that, but I, I think you might be right. I think, actually, that Fulham might, t- you know, might turn up at the weekend and get a result of Arsenal. And because there is no real... Well, there is pressure on the game, obviously, if we, you know, there's pressure on every game now. But the fact that people aren't like, these are the games we need to win. And, and look, it happened in January, right? We were having this discussion about the games against West Brom and the games against Brighton that Fulham failed to win. And then, off the back of that, Fulham went and got two unbelievable results on both sides of Merseyside. And... And then you look back at that and think maybe it was the fact that it was like, oh, these games are must win. And then suddenly you look at the Everton and Liverpool games and the pressure, I don't know, reduces a bit slightly, perhaps. But the problem I have with that is that even if it's true and even if Fulham do go to Arsenal and Chelsea and pick up six points and suddenly the whole thing is back on, how does that like work in terms of if it does get to the final day if Fulham can't take their opportunities at this point when the pressure is there but not you know actually it's not do or die the pressure is there 100% and was in the last couple of weeks but it wasn't if you lose these games you are completely and utterly out of it there will be other opportunities but I am concerned what that would mean if we got to the final day and if we're, we're passing up these opportunities how would that you know how would we fare against Newcastle? Do you know what the, I think you're completely right, Jack, but for me, I see Newcastle. I'm really confident about that game with fans, right? I think there will be something magic in the air if fans are allowed that day. Yes, it could go horribly wrong, but I'm fairly confident that Fulham would turn up. And yes, of course, Alan Samaxman could score two from nowhere and it could be really disheartening. My actual worry though is Burnley and Southampton because they are crucial games if you're to get to that final day. And I think you're right. I I wouldn't massively be shocked if Fulham did do something extraordinary in one of the next two matches. But then we go into those Burnley and Southampton games and we'll be here again. Uh, A must win, uh, do or die, we'll we'll call it that Burnley home game. And it will fall flat because Fulham just seems to have this weight of expectation in the must-win games, the winnable games that really, really worries me. And I think teams will know this now that Fulham seem to slightly fall apart when the odds are in our favour. And and that is quite concerning because we can't come up every game against a team that oh, we're underdogs for. I think the concern for me is when we are comparing it to say that period before the Everton and, and Liverpool results and we're looking at the West Brom and the Brighton games, Maybe not the Brighton game, actually, in hindsight, but certainly the West Brom game. The performance levels are different. You know, they were much better. We're looking at a team that were creating opportunities in those games. And I think the concern coming into this next batch of tough games is that I don't think the performance standard is there. I don't think you could say that Fulham have deserved very much from the last couple of games, as we've already said. Um, and that that there's not much for them to take into these games, you know, to to... to, to to make that shift. And then it comes back down to, you know, looking at the squad itself and whether they are equipped for this sort of challenge. Um, they are a very young team, you know, second youngest in the league, I think average age. Um, and for sure, you know, you've got, you've got Scott Parker there who's got his experience and he's talked about having that too. But you can't really know how you'll respond in these situations until you're into them. Uh, that's not to say that the clubs that they've played for before uh, have not had high pressurized situations, but relegation is is a very different environment. Um, and so whether Fulham are actually able to lift themselves again against the better teams and actually pull off those big performances too, I think is is under question. And, and you're absolutely right, Sammy, about the Burnley and Southampton games. I think Burnley potentially are sort of playing themselves back into this if Fulham can get something out of the bag. And that may change the dynamic of that game a little bit, but... Those those matches, these matches that we've sort of like picked out and said, you know what, they need to pick, take three points. They're not, they're not the games that Fulham are securing the points in at the moment. Yeah, I, I mean, Jack, a lot of people have been pointing fingers at, at Scott and at Tony and the club in general this season. And I was angry on Sunday and, and we were all quite angry on the podcast and, and you may have heard that. But I, I think I have seen a few people just, just reminding the fan base of like the challenge that Fulham came into this season. And whilst yes, there are big problems also, I think there has to be a dose of realism that 
the situation that Fulham found themselves in this season, it was always going to take a monumental effort to, to stay up. And we kind of find ourselves very much at the bottom of a downward curve at the moment. And that could go further and further down. But also, I, I, I'm not massively loving this talk of Parker's future. I still believe that there is only one man for next season, come what may. And yes, the recruitment out at us side of it as well is is one that will be debated for, for many years to come I'm just thinking that the fans need to pull together a little bit if we're to try and get out of this now and and the time for the inquest maybe isn't this week I I feel like that could potentially be parked for a few more yeah I, I think that there's there's so many different ways to look at this and depending on how you know your prism falls you're going to you're going to take stock of the situation in a different way a lot of people will say that the recruitment came too late and the first six games of the season were uh, other pro- point the other problem and and that's why we find ourselves in the in the point we are in now others will say okay the recruitment was bad well, was slow um and and therefore but it wasn't that that has put us here because actually by the time that the games came around last month, the team was there with the pieces in, in place to suggest that Fulham had a good enough, free, uh, you know, a, a place, a chance of staying up. And because those chances were there and, and, and they were. So you can lay the blame wherever you want to lay the blame, right? You can, however you look at the club, you'll find where you want to, you'll find an opportunity to lay the blame where you want to lay the blame. If you want to lay the blame at Tony Khan's door, there's opportunity to do so. There've been mistakes. If you want to lay the blame at Scott Parker's door, there's opportunity to do that. And and there's mistakes there as well. What I'm saying is that there's probably a little bit of all of it, right? Was the recruitment a little bit slow? Yes, of course it was. And would we have had a better chance if that had happened faster? Of course we would have. But is it possible to have got the players that we got through the door in that earlier period? I don't know don't work in football recruitment, right? But I don't think so. Uh, and, I, and I think that when you look at all of these these opportunities, what people are using is they'll take a set section of this season and they will just use that to fuel what they think, which is fine. That's how opinions work. But it, it, what you, you see on Twitter is some people being like, oh, Parker has to go because, he, you know, the, the football has been has been turgid, has been stodgy. And, 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 and there is, there is reason to believe that. I, I think that you can, you can look at the last couple of games and say, Scott Parker has got things wrong. I, I think that you can, you'd be mad if you didn't think that you can say Scott Parker's only in this position because we didn't get the players in early enough and we should assign different players. But you actually look at some of the players that Fulham were linked with earlier in the transfer window and see how they're doing now. And it paints a very different picture. And, and, and perhaps Fulham aren't even in the position to get themselves out of the mire if those transfers don't come in, look, I don't know. We're working in hypothetical, theoretical scenarios here. It doesn't, it doesn't hugely matter, to be perfectly honest with you. What I'm saying is that if you think you've got the answer, I, I don't think you do because I don't think anyone does. I think there's a little bit of all of these problems which have all caused it. Now, I don't think Scott Parker should go. I don't think that that's the answer either. But I do think that Scott Parker has to have a look at himself and, and say, why haven't we been able to take control of these games? Why haven't we been able to pick up games by the scruff of the neck? And you look back at the games against... West Brom and Brighton and you say maybe that's where the season was lost we said at the time and then we decided that wasn't where the season was lost because we got results against Liverpool and Everton but if actually we'd got four results there rather than two then maybe Fulham would be higher up in this table so you can again you can pin it wherever you want right but what I'm saying is that maybe everybody needs to just have a little look and be like there are elements of all of this that have gone wrong but Fulham were in an incredibly difficult situation given the time scale given the recruitment window given the fact that the playoff final came later than it's ever done in its history there's kind of a little bit of all of this so I I think you can lay the blame everywhere I think Sammy when you mentioned um, you know the the point about sort of recriminations and questions to be answered there absolutely is a place for that and there will be a place for that Um, but I do I do sort of agree that it perhaps isn't the right time now I think that because of how this weekend went because of Sunday's result and the way Alan San Maxman changed the game for Newcastle and you just see the attacking flair that they've got, the one thing that Fulham seemingly have lacked quite extensively, then you see the West Brom result, the fact that they were able to put three past Southampton, having put five past Chelsea um, on top of the, the Wolves' performance. It did feel very bleak. It does feel like it's it's over. And, and you know, when, <laughs> we'll talk about some of the, the examples that Fulham have to follow at the moment and there aren't exactly very many. So we're not... It, <laughs> This isn't to say that relegation isn't coming, um, but there is certainly, a t- I think there is definitely a, a time for those questions to be asked. There is a question to be asked about Scott Parker. There's a question to be asked about recruitment and Tony Khan. 
there is a there is a question to ask about Fulham's long term plan here. How are they planning to cement themselves into the prem, into a Premier League side more uh, more consistently? Um, but I think I think Jack is right fundamentally because when you look back at this season, there are elements in which all all areas have you know suffered difficulties, have not succeeded. You know, I mean that's that's evident from some of the results we've seen on the pitch. It's it's, it's evident perhaps in the way in which Fulham haven't had the same attacking arsenal. I think that they probably need to stay in the division. Um, but then there's also the things that have to be considered. You know, there is that that tight turnaround and everything else that goes with it. So I think I think it is twofold. There is there is, there has to be a place for the, for those questions to be asked. There has to be uh, a time where though each area is assessed and evaluated. And, and you know, if, if Fulham are to achieve what they want to achieve, if they want the new Riverside stand to be played in front, to have Premier League football played in front of it, then they will have to learn from these mistakes. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean you, you, you sideline what they've actually got right. And they have got a lot right this year. You know, we're not, th- these things don't come out of nowhere. The, the good performances, the good results, the improvement in the players. I think when you actually look at some of the performances, I know we talk about the early weeks of the season and I know the personnel changed, but even within the players in the current group and how they've evolved and improved as the season's gone on, considering they don't have much Premier League experience as well, um, is impressive. Um, so there's, there's two sides to it. But that's not to underplay the fact that questions will absolutely have to be asked. Yeah, indeed. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Afterwards, we're going to talk about the 2001 championship winning side. And also, Peter's done a spreadsheet. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast, and it's the Thursday Club. Sammy here with Peter Rutzler. Hello. And Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. So first of all, uh, I just want to talk about the fact that this week is the 20-year anniversary of the famous Jean Tigana Fulham side winning the first division. 101 points, uh, a monumental season. And I'm really excited to announce uh, that next Sunday, the 25th of April, Fulhamish is going to be releasing this. Davis! In the summer of 2000, Fulham were on the precipice of an extraordinary season. A new millennium was underway, Tony Blair was nearing the end of his first term as Prime Minister, and as Fulham started their season against Crew Alexandra on the 12th of August, Craig David's seven days was top of the UK charts. Manager Paul Bracewell had left, and former French midfielder Jean Tagana swooped in to the banks of the River Thames. His arrival prompted one of the most memorable seasons in full of history. Fernandez with a kick. Oh! And it's played through here to Barry Hales. Block shot gets a deflection. Comes to Davis. What a steal! In this new episode of Unforgettable, we look back at that triumphant campaign, hearing from some of the players in that iconic team and the fans who were there to witness it. Yeah, that's right. Unforgettable, a Fulhamish special documentary on that 2000-2001 promotion winning side to the Premiership at the time. Uh, it's going to be released next Sunday, the 25th of April. Um, if you listen to our Unforgettable documentaries on the Juventus game and the Hamburg game, it's a very, very similar format. Uh, lots of key stakeholders in that side are uh, going to be featured in the documentary. So do check that out next weekend when it drops. Um, but if you can't wait until then to, to get some nostalgia over that monumental season 20 years ago, um, Peter has written a, an incredible long read in The Athletic, which you do need to check out. Uh, of course, if you want to get The Athletic for £1 a month, then go to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. Um, Peter, you had some great names in this piece. It really was a wonderful um 10, 15 minute read of pure nostalgia. Um, did you enjoy putting the piece together? Yeah, no, absolutely. These are, these are the pieces that are really enjoyable to, to speak to people about and then to write because it is such a, a positive feeling and everyone's very willing to talk to you. There are so many stories that often don't get told. And, um, 
it's particularly nice to obviously <laughs> revisit that during what has been quite a tense and challenging um, period in this season and obviously with relegation too, uh, a, a real threat now. And it's nice to, to hark back to, to what was a, a really extraordinary season um, for the way in which it made so many different changes, the way Fulham played that year, um, the group of players, the story itself, of course, you know, from that electric start, uh, what it was like for the players and training and, and the innovations that the Jean Tigana and Chris and Jamiano and Roger Propo, what they what they sort of brought in uh, from dental checks to banning ketchup to, to all sorts of things and, and even from the technical side too. And um, But then, of course, the season goes on. You had, you had uh, Chris Coleman's uh, car crash as well and the impact on, on his teammates and the players and yet the fact that they were able to carry on and, and, and of course, the iconic games too, uh, which I talked about so much. And, of course, it's, it's this week that... Um, 20 years ago that there was the Blackburn game to start at Huddersfield and then, then obviously Sheffield Wednesday. So yeah, they're, the, they're, they're really enjoyable and they're also enjoyable because once, once it goes out, it evokes so many memories. You know, people remember that season. They'll remember little different things. And I know a few people in my mentions were talking about the, a preseason game at Tiverton in the sun and that first impression of what Jean Tigana's football was going to be like. And then also Louis Saha. Um, and uh, yeah, exactly. This is a really enjoyable uh, piece to write, and um, hopefully, it will trigger some some really positive memories for for Fulham fans too. I mean, Jack, I, I rewatched the full DVD um, yes. that was released that season, and just some wonderful performances. Yeah. And you just had like a magic front line, didn't you? And and particularly what shone out for me is I forgot like how skillful like a player like Barry Hales was. He waltzed through defenders in that league. And yes, of course, Louis Saha took the headline. So did Boa Morte. Um, but for me, Barry Hales was, was such an unsung hero that year. He was, he was electrifying at times. Bazcat was unreal, wasn't he? He just, he just, he just happened to be that player that, that kind of got forgotten about. And you're absolutely right. And, and actually, I think the thing with Barry Hales is that he just kept stepping up. Like, you know, Fulham bought him and they were like, right, this is, you know, a player for, for X division. And then you're like, right, we'll probably. And then he steps up again under Tigana. And then he steps up again when Fulham gets to the Premier League. And everyone was like, what's going on here? And I think that was that was the most amazing thing about Barry. And the fact that he just kept scoring goals all the way through wherever he played, you know, whatever division he was playing in, he just scored goals. And he continues to score goals to this day. You know, and, and, yeah. and that's the most amazing thing. So, so yeah, I, I, look, that team were just, were just magic. And I always, I always forget about Fabrice Fernandez. He's perhaps yes. like the, you know, the player that I'm always like, ah, oh, what a guy. And that's obviously that free kick against Man United in the FA Cup is the one that, that people talk about. But, you know, the celebration, for years I did a plain celebration with my tongue out because of Fabrice Fernandez. And, and that was just <laughs> like one of those things that, that you kind of forget about. And the fact that Fulham went on this absolutely like mad FA Cup run that only ended to you know, Man United, who had treble winners less than two years beforehand. You're like, what's going on? The whole thing is is all just a bit mad. Um, but yeah, it's lovely to hark back to those. It's different times, and, and, and football feels like a different world now, doesn't it? And it, it, there's there's so much of that. Maybe it's just because I was actually a child, and like the nostalgia value of you know those are the kind of first real memories I have of Fulham. Um, but but it does feel like there's something that they're very sepia tinged. There's that there's that hark of nostalgia about it. What also struck me is I forgot how many bloody. Imagine if they'd have done a goal of the season compilation that year. It would have been like just Fulham. For, it would be 40. No, but even if they did a Fulham goal of the season, it, honestly, you'd have had about 30 goals. They have free kicks, long range shot. You talk about free Bruce Fernandez. He scored a goal in the um, Worthington Cup against Northampton. That's like. That should be illegal. He, he put, it's like one of those right in the stanchion kind of goals. And yeah, a, a, an incredible team. And I, and I do think if they'd have been in the Premiership that year, I know obviously we got to the Premiership the next year, but you know, we took Liverpool to extra time of a, of a Worthington Cup match in a, in a side that had all the big guns playing. It really was an exceptional time. And as I mentioned, if you want to kind of relive that nostalgia, Check out the podcast next week. But before then, make sure you read Peter's piece because it's absolutely brilliant in The Athletic. Can we go back to calling it the Worthington Cup? Just like, just generally. Just, uh, I think it would just add a real flavour to it. I, I, Worthington need to pull some 
pennies out of their pocket and, and re-sponsor Did Worthington even exist anymore? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe sponsoring the Worthington Cup actually bankrupted Worthington. Well, the problem with Worthington Cup is everyone started calling it the Worthless Cup, didn't they, when Worthington <laughs> sponsored I, I, it? I don't remember, but very plausibly, yeah. Yeah, it really did. It wasn't a good It wasn't a good look for, for the now Carabao Um but yeah, they were the days, weren't they? Um, so Peter, I, I teased um, before the break that you've you've made a spreadsheet. And um, I remember when you told us that um, the number that Liverpool's backline against Fulham, uh, the, the number that it amounted to uh, a few weeks ago, and, and both Jack and I said, that's what we pay our athletic subscription to. Um, I feel like this spreadsheet might take it up a notch. So you've done some calculations as to other teams in the Premier League and Premiership um, with six games to go and the situation that Fulham find themselves in and can we stay up? So I will hand over to you and Peter's spreadsheet.xls. Sammy, you have built up this spreadsheet far too much. I mean, I mean I, I, I'm an absolute novice with spreadsheets anyway and it's, um, it's basically a copy of another one and I've just sort of edited it to change the number of games left and anyway it's very boring um bottom line of it is does it give a promising reading um no is the long and the short of it (laughs) oh um so yeah sorry about that but um the one so basically that this this glorified spreadsheet um (laughs) which uh i am now concerned i may need to add more information to so that it fulfills the value of the subscription um um, is you know basically just looking at how teams fared uh with six games to go in the bottom three and and whether they stayed up but also more importantly the the points adrift and and whether there are teams in in similar situations because fulham are six points adrift and obviously the games are tough too that's not even factored in at this point but um my 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 first collection of said data from uh, 2000 um, suggests there's only uh, only Fulham um, in um, back in uh, 2007 2008 have managed to overturn a six point gap or more to stay in the division from this point. Now I would say Fulham's situation might actually be slightly worse because the, what I've collected here is just the, the 32 games and then obviously this season only Fulham have played 32 games so Newcastle game in hand, West Brom have a game in hand and we're looking at potentially more than just six. We'll see. The game in hand is tough. Um, so that that doesn't add any more optimism either. But there are there are sides at this point, if we're going to flip it the other way and just say sides who at this point have managed to stay up, there are seven teams going back in the last 20 years who have managed to escape the drop zone um, coming into it in that position at this point. Um, what, six points adrift? Or more no, than I mean, they're not six points adrift. That's just that's just Fulham in 07 08. Um, okay, no, okay. six points just full stop. Six teams full stop. I think the most points adrift they were was Bolton. Obviously, Bolton the same season was four points. So, Bolton and Fulham four points and six points. The rest okay. is no more than two points adrift by this stage. So, I guess the one thing that saves Fulham in this whole situation, and, and I've had to kind of remind myself of this early this week is we face the team we're catching on the final day. So the chance of a swing is there. And I guess that rarely happens. We've talked about it numerous times that Sky Sports will be going mad over it if it is a relegation playoff. And that does change the dynamic of what's possible really, because actually Fulham just need to be within three points on the final day. And of course, normally if you're three points adrift on the final day, it's not looking very good, but that will be a unique scenario, assuming obviously the goal difference works out as well. Yeah, I guess we've been sort of treating the run in as as five games, well, as five games, but as one minus with that Newcastle game. And you want to make sure that you're within that, that shooting distance and whether all the other factors we've discussed earlier in the podcast about pressure and actually coping with the, that occasion and whether fans too can can swing it the other way is are other factors as well. But I, absolutely. So, you know, if you do if you do can see it that way and you do see it as, as three points with, with five games to go, then yeah, suddenly it's it's not so bad. But again, you know, the, there's no there's no illusions here about what Fulham have to do at this point. You know, we're obviously coming into it on a on a bad run of form with tough fixtures, and you can understand why there, there are people who think this, this it's done and dusted because it's going to be tough. And if they do pull it off, it will be extraordinary. But you know, as we've said, Fulham have shown that they can get results when they need them. So maybe I, f- 
I feel like we need to ask Adam from the Football Clichés podcast this question. Um, but if Fulham if Fulham survive, is it a great escape? Can you can you brand it as the Great Escape Volume Two, Peter? Yeah, oh, hundred percent. I mean, yeah, I think it's already fit the criteria, hasn't it? Because obviously Fulham were ten points adrift at one stage um, back in before the Everton game. Um, but then the question is, does a Great Escape count depending on where it is in terms of the the season? Yeah, for, well, obviously, I think for me at this point, it'd be one of the greatest escapes ever at this point. Okay, maybe that's one that we need to submit as a question for the next Football Clichés <laughs> podcast is um, what is the strict definition of a great escape? I mean, Jack, I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are. What what constitutes for you a great escape? Like, when does it just become like, oh, this team survived and it was good and that team survived and it was a miracle? I think it's like, the, the one for me is when Fulham went down in 13-14, Sunderland stayed up, right? Yeah. And... I would not call that a great escape. Um, oh, controversial. Because it wasn't late. I think there has to be an element of like, well, I suppose they won four games on the trot. Uh, no, maybe. I think I think you... No, you're, I right, think you're right, to be fair. I mean, they were no points adrift at this point with, with six games to go. So, I mean, they were 18th, but... I mean, I just, they, they won, like it was the kind of the real swing. They lost lows, didn't they? In the first half of the season. And then I think they had a period over Christmas where they lost only once in about two months and they, they didn't win that many, but they drew quite a lot and they picked up, I'd say 20 points over the Christmas period. And I then, then they went on a run of losses and then they went on a run of wins. But I do think that it felt inevitable despite the fact they kept losing through like March, like it felt inevitable that Sunderland were going to catch us. And I don't think I would call that a great escape because it was, it wasn't late. I think there's something about it being late that has to happen, right? If, if you do it in March, it doesn't really count. So, so yeah, I would say that that doesn't count because it's not late enough. It has to be, you know, like kind of going down to the final days, I think for it to really be, and if, in fact, it might have to go down to the final day to be a great escape. I mean, that might be part of the criteria. So in that case, do you think that maybe Fulham, West Brom from recent memory, a few of the only teams, I know West Ham had a particularly extraordinary escape, the whole Carlos Tevez year. I mean, the fact that they had Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascarano shouldn't have meant, shouldn't have meant that it was that extraordinary, but they were having a, a terrible time of it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of any other teams then that come under Jack's category of a, of a great escape. Didn't West I think, Brom I, do it one time. Yeah. West Brom did it on the final day. They, they, that is the real great and escape. Actually, you know what? I hate to give them any credit, but I think QPR might've pulled off a great escape. They did. did. The season that they stayed up with Man City. The season they stayed up with Man City. I think they won four home. I was watching a documentary about them the other day because I'm weird. Um, They won four or five home games on the bounce um, in that season. And and they stayed up on the final day. It went down to the final day. I think that's the key. I think that's the key. So I'm going to say that they committed a great escape that, that year. I think in the next couple of weeks, let's let's commission Adam and the football cliches team to to can find you, to can us. Can you commission them? Is that is that how it works? We're all we're all one big athletic family. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure Peter can pull strings. Um, <laughs> there are strings we, to be pulled, <laughs> and we can find out the accurate definition of of, of a great escape. Do check out the uh, the football cliches podcast. It's uh, free if you're on the athletic app without adverts, uh, and of course, it's in your podcast app of choice. All right. Uh, We're going to take a break and then look ahead to Sunday's game against Arsenal. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast. It's Sammy here with Jack and Peter. Let's look ahead then to Sunday's game at Arsenal. Dom is doing a preview with Don Robbie himself, I believe. Uh, It's going to be live on the Fulhamish YouTube channel, hopefully in the next couple of days. Robbie Lyle from Arsenal Fan TV or AFTV, as you uh, now need to call them. Uh, And obviously, Robbie is lovely. Like I've had the pleasure of meeting him just the once, but he's always given up time to be on the Fulhamish YouTube channel um, and he's got us on several times as well so um big up Robbie uh, and that uh, preview that's going to be up online in the next few days so Arsenal Jack may have their eye one eye I guess on the Slavia Prague game that um, happens tonight as we record this a really tough away match quarterfinal for them and really for Arsenal their season boils down a lot more to the Europa League than the Premier League because for them even Europa League football in the Premier League is probably gone, let alone top four. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think they are pretty much out of the European race in terms of the Premier League. Yeah. I think they'll obviously want to finish in the top half because it's Arsenal and anything else would be slightly embarrassing, you'd imagine. Um, but, you know, it's w- one of those strange ones where, you know, you, you think that Arsenal are going to uh, are going to be focusing on the Europa League. However, they could be out of it um, by the time you're listening to this podcast um, because they have an incredibly difficult job to go and win at Slavia now. Um how they didn't win the first leg, I will never know. Um, and then they fully did an Arsenal and conceded a <laughs> corner for absolutely no reason in the 93rd minute and it got nodded in. And and now they have a really, really arduous task ahead of them. I think ideally what we want here is this game to go to injury time, uh, to extra time and then Arsenal to progress. Um, and, I, you know, I normally sort of cheer against almost any other English club in the Europa League because you kind of want, to see new clubs and, and new clashes and obviously I adore this tournament so an Arsenal Man United final is like is like my worst nightmare if I'm being perfectly honest but if, if you actually you know from a Fulham perspective we really want Arsenal to progress here because I think that you want them to be focusing on the, on the Europa League you want them this to be a tough arduous slog tonight so that they're tired uh, and then they're going to have to be looking ahead obviously there's not going to be games the week after but there is there's only a one week break from European competition now and and that will kind of force their hand especially if they come up against former manager Unai Emery which is looking increasingly likely as Villarreal are 2-0 up away from home in the other semi-final uh, other quarter-final on their side of the bracket so um, yeah look we uh, it's, it's a strange one Arsenal should have all eyes on the Europa League They this is where their season you know hangs now um, and they've had it before. They got to that final, obviously, in Baku, where they lost to Chelsea. And that felt like the kind of breaking point for their season that year as well. So it's not like it's something they're not used to. But yeah, I, I think they have a really, really tough ask of it tonight. If, you, if I was a betting man, I would suggest that I don't think Arsenal are going to go through. But I hope to be proved wrong on this count. I mean, Peter, so much has changed since that first game of the season where we faced Arsenal. And and after that, and it wasn't just Fulham fans thinking that they could win the league. I think Arsenal fans fully got carried away with that. Can't confirm that I didn't think that Arsenal were going to win the league. I just wanted to put that on record. But it was a a really impressive performance that day. A Bamiyang absolutely tore um, Tim Ream and and Dennis Adoy, a new one. And... um, I, I guess a lot has changed since then, though, and, and probably that's the highlight in the Premier League of Arsenal season, not far off. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that opening day day game, I mean, Arsenal were really, really impressive. It felt like the system that Arteta had, had used, um, pulling Aubameyang out to the left-hand side was going to be really, really effective. I think Willian sort of ran the game that day as well, and that transfer hasn't exactly worked out as well as, they, as most would probably like from an Arsenal persuasion. So... Um, I think everything has changed for for both teams in a sense. I think more so for, for Arsenal. I think, as Jack says, they're in terms of European competition, they they are struggling. I don't think they're they're off the pace yet. But if if they can can get through uh, on Thursday night, um, obviously we're recording before before the result, but um, that would be that would be a good thing actually for for, for, for Fulham just to that they can prioritise uh, that competition. Um, I think. You know, I feel like Arsenal are pretty much a, a mid-table team now. Um, maybe they have been for a little while, but you know, the, the consistently the performances they 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 offer. You know, I think they went to Old Trafford and won, didn't they, earlier in the season? And then you, you get other performances like at home to Burnley as well. And you know, the, that contrast has sort of you know def, defined their season. And I think they, they've become a little bit more steady of late, if that's the best way of describing them. Uh, obviously, they lost to Liverpool and. Um, I actually so steady. Of course, they went to West Ham, conceded free, but responded. Um, they, they, you don't know what you're going to get with them. I think that's the key thing. Um, they, they've lacked that sort of uh, consistency in performance, and I think for, from a Fulham perspective, this is the game ahead of this run of fixtures. You know, of the of the away ones, Bar Southampton, of course, um, that is probably the most winnable. Whether that means that translates into a performance from Fulham that will be enough to to win, I, I don't know. But um, in terms of how the teams will set up, you know, I mean, you, you look at the comparison from that opening day, you know, in, in the sunshine um, back at the cottage, and obviously Scott Parker used pretty much the, the same lineup as, as the playoff final that day. Um, and I, I, you'd imagine that Fulham defensively would be able to to cause Arsenal more issues. Um, 
I think Arsenal have struggled in, in forward areas. They haven't been able to use Aubameyang in the same way. Lacazette seems to have found a good bit of form, but Nicola Pepe has had bright moments. He hasn't been consistent. Um, they're a team that almost have the same, a similar sort of vulnerability in terms of their mentality. And if Fulham can keep it tight, if they can make it difficult, um, then there are there are ways to to result against against Arsenal. Um, Jack, uh, lineup. I mean, it was a bit lineup bingo against Wolves. There were some quite unexpected changes, obviously, especially with Congolo coming back in and Fulham kind of almost playing a top two with Mitro decked over Reed, which didn't quite work. Um, you'd imagine Tosin comes in because we, we think Congolo is injured. Nothing's being confirmed. There might be a return f- for Lookman. Again, we don't know. Nothing's really being confirmed. I imagine we might get more info in the presser, which I assume is later today, Peter. Um, but what do we go with? At this point, I'm starting to wonder how, if it's futile trying to guess a Fulham lineup because it seems to be quite unpredictable at the moment. Yeah, um, might be time to bring Joe Bryan back in. Uh, I didn't think Anthony Robinson was particularly brilliant uh, against against Wolves. Uh, That's an interesting take. I thought Robinson had quite a good game. I think his he lacked end product. Uh, and to be honest, we 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 really really did again fully with... disagree. I thought oh, a couple uh, of crosses were good. One cross, really good. Yeah, there, was probably, there, was, there was two. There was two to be um, fair. I, I think if look, I just think we we bring Joe Bryan's crossing ability back in. If I'm being perfectly honest, I think Joe Bryan whips the ball from deeper. I think he knows where Mitrovic wants it. And if you're going to play Mitrovic up there, you've got to try and play to his strengths. We didn't do that. Um, I would start Mitrovic up top alongside Adamola Lookman. Uh, I would keep Loftus Cheek in there. I thought Angisa was excellent when he came on. Um, I would start him probably alongside Harrison Reed. Although Mario Lamina is a great player. I I just don't mind. I don't mind who gets picked in there, but I would make sure that Angisa was 100% starting the next game. I thought he looked fit, up for it, ready when he came on. Made a massive difference as far as I was concerned. Yeah, um, aside from that, it depends whether Scott goes back to a four or five at the back. I think if you go to a four at the back, which I would maybe do here, um, because I think you look at it and, and try and create uh, and try and, and try and push forward and, and try and get bodies into that midfield. Um, then I think I would start Joe Bryan because I don't. I'm not comfortable with with Anthony Robertson as a left back. I'm quite comfortable with him as a left wing back. Um, but I, I would prefer Brian in there if we're going to play with a, with an out and out left back. Um, I look a lot of people disagree with that. I and, and you two clearly do. I just didn't think Anthony Robertson was particularly particularly brilliant. If I if I was being perfectly honest, I wanted him in the team. I, I thought that was the right decision. I just didn't think he did huge amounts. Yeah, I'm with Sammy. I think on on Robinson's before. I actually thought it was one of his best. I think one of his big flaws has been his end product. And I think on, a, on the occasions where he got into those spaces, I thought he did okay. I don't think he got into them enough, and that's probably I can see where that where, the, where that argument comes from. I think you know for for me, it's interesting you mentioned Joe Bryan. I think Joe Bryan's had such a difficult season, and it's not as though he's done anything of his own accord. Um, it's always been fascinating just watching him in terms of in the warm-ups and how he sort of interacted with his teammates. And we all know what his character's like. He's a really eloquent guy. He's a funny guy. He's, he seems to get on with everyone really, really well. And you can see that in the way he sort of interacts with his teammates. I mean, at halftime in that game, he was going around, he was geeing up everybody. Um, this is just, a, you know, the subs go out for a warm-up before and then they come back in. And, um, and Anthony Robinson, I think, spoken about it earlier in the season about how, you know, when he came in, Joe Ryan's one of the first. He came up to him and said, everything you need and they sort of help each other. And, and Joe's been guiding him in that sense. So, I, you know, I've, I do feel for, for Joe Bryan quite a bit. And, I, I, you know, I think with Mitrovic now very much back at centre stage, I think Jack's right. I think you do want to have that delivery from the left-hand side on a more consistent basis. And I think when you look at Bryan and Robinson in terms of what they've done before, Bryan is, is better at delivering a ball from a wide area. I think, like, one of my issues with the Wolves game, and I know Scott Parker got some criticism for it, um, and I, I feel like in the, in the second half when Fulham, the game was tied at 0-0, uh, and the first change was to take off Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Fulham didn't have any forward-thinking players on the field at that point. I think it was only two. I think it was only Bobby Dekadova-Reed and Alexander Mitrovic. Um, I, I think uh, presumably Angisa was treated in that same way. But for, for me, it's, it's that, I mean, we're diverting back to the Wolves game a bit here, but that was a key juncture in that game. And I don't think Fulham can, be, can play in that sort of way going forward. And now we can talk about the options that are at Parker's disposal. But coming into a game, I know it's Arsenal away, but Fulham really do need to have players with a, with a more forward-thinking mentality on the field. Um, I agree with Jack. I think Angisa and RLC together in the middle with one with one holding. I don't think you need more than that. I think the fact that Fulham played with a five and then Lamina and Reed against Wolves, against a vulnerable Wolves team, 
for me, it, it, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We can always go over go over on hindsight, but it was just that that bit too negative, really. Um, Especially when Pedro Neto got injured, like you know, and, and obviously you don't wish injuries on anyone, right? And then the last thing you want to say is, is is make a game plan based on that. But once Pedro Neto was injured, Wolves really only had one one big threat going forward, and that was Traore, and he was mostly on the other side. Obviously, they changed to a two up front, and he sort of played as a support striker towards the end, but did think that once Pedro Neto went off, Fulham had the chance to, to become more expansive and just didn't really take it. No, I completely agree. And, you know, when Anguisa did come on, his, his dribbling and his, his movement forward was made a sort of a difference. So, I, you know, I played both Anguisa and Loftus-Cheek this weekend. Um, I think he could cause Arsenal some real problems in that midfield area. Um, if he can get back to his form, I don't think he's been playing at the same level as we've discussed before. Um, and then it's all about if Lookman's fit. I think one of the big takeaways from Wolves was... Fulham really don't have that spark without Lookman in the team. Uh, that's not to say that you know that Fulham's players, there is some attack, attacking quality there, but Lookman seems to me to be the only player who can grab a game and win it himself. Um, and that's that's been one of the big flaws. Um, and whether he's fit, you know, Scott Parker seemed to indicate last week in his press conference that he was fit, but you never actually really fully know. And it sounds like he was he did some light training, but wasn't going to be ready. And with a hamstring, you can never never be too sure that he will will feature this weekend. So if he is, he goes straight back into the team for me. Um, you need those dynamic runners and, and maybe it is worth going back to a four, um, whether Arsenal see deemed to possess the same threats coming off the back of a trip to Prague. I don't know. That's that for me it's 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 one of those that the Fulham need to go for and, and, and try and try and take 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 a result from um, especially try and solve those attacking issues. Yeah, well, fingers crossed we, we can do it this weekend. I think you talk about Loftus-Cheek there and the lack of options, and I think that is where you massively miss Tom Kearney, right? I think that him being able to come off the bench for Loftus-Cheek would give us that different option that Parker clearly doesn't have. But I, I think you're totally right. I think we were very negative against Wolves. And, and I think what's important now is that there is a bit of pressure off. I think most pundits and analysts would probably fairly assume that Fulham are down I think now is the time where you kind of have to go for broke a little bit and if you lose 3-0 to Arsenal because you tried okay I think that's what you have to do now is is go for wins and, and look at what you know West Brom did to Chelsea they they went for it they were brave they were organized and they managed to get a result like I, I think now I'd rather get one win against Arsenal and Chelsea rather than kind of draw one of them because we managed to kind of be negative enough to to get a result in one of them so yeah be interesting to see what happens on sunday hopefully you can go watch it in a pub garden if you're in the uk because now we're allowed to legally have pints again uh things have certainly brightened up uh jack had quite a few pints last night he was telling me before the podcast a few baby guinnesses as well um he's managed to make it to the end of the podcast though so congratulations for that one still cooking <laughs> all right well we will um be back on sunday i'm hosting the pod looking back at that Arsenal game we're going to lose well I mean we said that and then you hosted the Villa podcast so I think we're both cursed now to be perfectly honest maybe, um, it's, maybe it's Fulham that probably yeah, yeah maybe maybe, it's, maybe actually it's nothing to do with who hosts the podcast maybe it is the 11 players on the pitch but um, who knows uh, but thank you for listening today um, Jack Collins thank you very much for being here thank you for having me Sammy and Peter Russell thank you no thank you Sammy alright we will be back on Sunday as I mentioned Come on, Fuller. Happy Whites. You Whites!